So please sit comfortably, everyone. A um, little bit of Zen advice I meant to say before in my opening words, um, which is relevant, perhaps very relevant to uh, doing uh, Zen on Zoom where we're sitting alone. There was uh, a well-known Japanese teacher um, who was the teacher of um, DT Suzuki and many other people called um, Shaka Soen. And he said, uh, when, you're, when you're alone, act as though you're with other people. And when you're with other people, act as though you're alone. So you get a consistency across your whole life. Um, and as we sit alone in our own rooms, sit as though you're with everyone in the same room. The title of this talk, to give it a title, is grasping mind and don't know mind. Now, it's a little bit of background to this. Um, as I've been mentioning in one of my Sydney Tuesday evening talks, I've been doing a lot of reading at the moment on um, the more philosophical books um, to do with how Buddhism is coming West and how it's influenced by Western culture and how we look at how we understand the Dharma in the context of Western philosophy, Western tradition, science, etc. Most Dharma books are Dharma self-help books. These aren't self-help books. They're sort of looking at the whole, taking a meta view, looking at the whole context, which I'm rather interested in because um, earlier in my life I actually did a, a degree in philosophy. Um, and when I look back on it, um, it was part of a kind of a pre-Dharma journey because I took up philosophy as a young man in my late teens and early 20s, trying to find, when I look back on it anyway, with the wisdom of hindsight, I was trying to find some kind of certainty in life, some kind of bedrock of truth or wisdom on which you could sort of base your life. And I didn't want to just fall into believing in something just to get rid of my anxiety of uncertainty. I want to be really sure. And as I delved into Western philosophy over five years, I realised there wasn't any certainty anywhere. At least there wasn't any certainty in words and phrases and philosophical treatises. Um, and it's what was the precursor that drew me towards Zen training. And I remember the actual point where there was a shift where I started reading Zen books and I read a book um, by Alan Watts called The Wisdom of Insecurity, uh, which created a, quite a significant shift in the way that I experienced my life. And he said, along the lines of what I'm talking about now, that there, there isn't any certainty to find. There isn't any bedrock there. But if you embrace the uncertainty and you embrace the insecurity, then there's a kind of intimacy with life which comes out of that. And so that what that's what took me to Zen. So um, 
I wasn't looking for any kind of certainty in words or philosophy anymore, but I'm pretty sure looking back at that time now that I was certain I was looking for some kind of certainty in something called enlightenment. Mm-hmm. But what's that? What is it? Mm-hmm. Um, it's very easy to hold on to different Dharma words, you know, to, for instance, to reading books that um, grasping mind is the problem, you know, and grasping leads to suffering. Um, but then we go, oh yeah, I've grasped that, grasping mind, that's the problem. But then we grasp onto that idea. Uh-huh. I've got it now, grasping mind, that's the problem. Uh-huh. But that's another form of grasping, you know. How do we how do we let go of this grasping? I've used this metaphor before, which is a metaphor for for addiction. You know, is you you got chewing gum stuck on your fingers here, right? So you you pull it off with the other hand, but it sticks to those fingers, and then you pull it off with that finger, and it sticks to that fingers. That's the nature of the grasping mind. It always wants to stick to something whatever it might be, and it sticks to Zen, and it sticks to Buddhism, and it sticks to all the philosophies and teachings that go along with it. So how do we, how do we thoroughly give up this grasping mind, you know, that's always wanting some, something right, something true to hold on to? Um, we see these words echoed in a, 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 a very funny and a lovely little Zen story about the Zen teacher Joshu and a hermit who had practiced for many, diligently for many, many years, one imagines, came to Joshu and said, um, I've thrown everything away. How do you treat me? Joshu replied, throw it away. Mm-hmm. Even that idea that you've thrown everything away, throw it away. Mm-hmm. It's another thing. It's another thing to hold on to. Um, on this matter too, it reminded me there is uh, a wonderful poem by Gary Snyder. Gary Snyder, who was one of the so-called beat poets, who. Um, in the 60s, 70s, I think maybe he's still alive today. But he was a Zen practitioner and he wrote a poem called Avocado. Why the Dharma is like an avocado. The Dharma is like an avocado. Some parts so ripe you can't believe it, but it's good. And other parts hard and green without much flavour pleasing those who like their eggs well cooked. And the skin is thin. The great big round seed in the middle is your own original nature, pure and smooth. Almost nobody ever splits it open or tries to see if it will grow. Hard and slippery, it looked like you should plant it, but then it shoots out through the fingers, gets away. Mm-hmm. 
So if you search for your true nature, search for your Buddha nature, ah, I've got it. And it's like the avocado seed, it slips out from your fingers all the time. Good metaphor of the non-grasping mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's also, in terms of philosophical books coming up, there was a bestseller came out one or two years ago, which is called Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. And anyone who is understands anything about Dharma practice or is teaching it um, would cringe at the title. Why Buddhism is True it makes it sound like it's some kind of fundamentalist religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's true because it's based on science, and all of the all of the research into science shows that mindfulness works, and we can demonstrate through MRI studies all the things that happen in the brain where it changes. So, Buddhism is exceptional because it's based on mindfulness. Therefore, it's true. Not really. I'm sure if you did research into Christians praying to God you would probably find it changes something in their brain and it changes something in their brain which calms them and makes them feel good and more loving. Uh-huh. So is Christianity based on science? Is there something exceptional about Buddhism? Not really. But it sells books to say that Buddhism is true and it creates, up, creates this kind of certainty that we're on the right path. Mm-hmm. When you get when you get past all of that, um, what you realise is that Dharma practice is not about finding the truth or certainty or enlightenment. If that's some kind of fixed psychological state that you go into, um, what it is about is intimacy and intimacy with life. Not just mean intimacy in a in a one to one relationship, it includes that, but it's about intimacy with life. And it's intimacy not just with all the good things in life, it's intimacy with the good and the bad and the ugly. Mm-hmm. A place which we often don't want to go to. We just want to be intimate with the good. But it's life in all of its messiness that we become intimate with. And it wouldn't even be accurate to say, oh, okay, well, you you find intimacy with life, Mm -hmm. that you search for it and then, oh, I found it. Mm -hmm. It's more like life finds you when you stop searching for it, when you stop looking for it. And it's like whatever it is we're searching for, truth, certainty, being right, being intimate, whatever, the more you search for it, the further it gets away from you. And it's when, it's not as though when, like you you give up as in apathetic, but when you give up searching, then then you receive, then then it comes to you. There's so much wisdom in those words we recite from Thich Nhat Hanh in our reading, please call me by my true names. Mm-hmm. 
it, it, it embraces the good, the bad, the ugly, it embraces everything. Compassion is unconditional. It doesn't select various things in life to, to, to embrace. It embraces all of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the challenge of practice. However, when you get to that place where you can embrace, please call me by my true names, not just as a poem, but the way that we live our life, something does shift. And then we're motivated by love and not by hate. Because we are everything. Everything is us. One of the most important koans, in my mind anyway, in our koan tradition, um, which kind of really gives the death knell to Buddhist philosophy, is a koan called, um, it's in the Mumonkan, Case 8, if I remember. Keshu makes carts. Keshu was a famous... Um, inventor of carts in, in um, ancient China. So the Zen teacher says to a monk, Keshu made a hundred carts or a thousand carts. If you take off the wheel and the spokes in the wheel and the axle and the box on top of it, what is left? Or a modern-day version might be Henry Ford made the car, and if you take off the wheels and the axles and the chassis and the body and the doors, what is left? What do a lot of Buddhists say? Nothing. There's nothing there. Take all parts. Nothing. It's all emptiness. Wrong. And if you say, well, it's just a pile of parts. Wrong. Like all koans, koans challenge our right and wrong, left and right, dualistic views of the world. And so we're actually we're actually engaged in the world. And this koan directs us towards that. Mm-hmm. And like all koans, some of the, the value of koans is that they do cultivate this don't know mind, the kind of a, a, a natural kind of humility, you know. And it's when we cultivate a don't know mind, we, we move through calm practice. The problem is we think that we've achieved something when we pass a koan. Oh, I've got that one. You know, something to hold on to, right? Something to validate our dharma ego. Oh, I must be on the path to enlightenment. Really, with each koan that we pass, we should rip it up and put it in the bin. Mm -hmm. That would be the the way to go with it. We don't find intimacy in life. Like I said before, it's kind of like we just become open to an integration in life. And other great words that point us in the right direction, again, in our readings, is um, Hakuin, Hakuin Zenji, 
like someone in the midst of the midst of water crying out in thirst, like a child of a wealthy home wandering amongst the poor. Mm -hmm. It's there right now. You don't have to go searching for it. But you start searching for it and you're one or two steps away from it. Dharma practice is also, apart from it's not finding something that cannot be found, it's also not about just developing a skill, like a mindfulness skill or a concentration skill. And I'll tell you something from personal experience around this of late. I was talking to one of my Zen friends about um, common common statement that Zen Zen people have just can't concentrate very well. Such a bad Zen student can't concentrate very well. And that he was telling me about um, the jhana practice of vipassana and how one of the one of the goals of vipassana practice is to be able to um, be totally mindful with a hundred breaths as a practiced, you know, to see whether you can really concentrate in the moment without deviating from it. So I thought, oh, okay, I'll give that a go. Um, And so with very strong intention, I sat down to see whether I could focus on my in-breath and out-breath without deviating from them for a hundred breaths. And at the risk of boasting here, I did. I tried it last week, I did. And then I tried it another time or two and the intention wasn't quite as strong and it wasn't quite as good as the first time. But see, I was trying to prove something, that I could do it. And it's really good for my Zen teacher ego, do you know that I can focus on a hundred breaths without deviating? Mm-hmm. But that's not it. It's a, it's a skill you could develop, it may be a, a useful skill. But that's not what Zen training is about. It's just that you can develop a skill just like a musician could develop a skill to play an instrument. But that's not at the essence of it. Now, I'm not demeaning, say, breath counting or concentration as a practice. It is, it's a good preliminary practice. And I encourage people to do it rather than just going into Shikantaza practice. Otherwise, you just get lost in it. But it's the end point's just not the developing of a skill. Mm-hmm. Like with koans, potentially it, it boosts your dharma ego rather than helps you to dissolve it. Mm-hmm. So grasping mind and don't know mind. Mm-hmm. Letting go. Yes, we let go. And then we need to let go of letting go. Because there's nothing that we can build on. Mm -hmm. But if we really see through that, um, then we embrace life. Or life embraces us. And to take it a step further, Okay, it's not necessarily about philosophy or skill, 
But it's also a bit misleading to say, oh, it's about developing love and compassion. I'll just love other people more. I'll be more compassionate to other people. That's what it's about. It's about the heart more. But that's still trying to achieve something. Just trying to validate something. And it's one way. It's unidirectional. It's like, oh, I'll, I'll give, I'll give, I'll give, I'll give, I'll give all the time. I'll be more selfless by giving. But life is not in nature. Any, any animal, any plant, any being in nature just doesn't give. It also receives. It's part of life. It's part of a cycle. It's part of an ecology. There's giving and taking happening all the time. Mm -hmm. Robert Aitken wrote a book called The Mind of Clover. When the clover dies, it goes back into the ground and it becomes compost for everything else. Mm -hmm. It's not trying to be good to other beings, but it just is nutritious to other beings because it lived a life and then it died. Mm -hmm. So even to set up um, a dharma of the heart as compared to a dharma of the mind, I'll just become more and more selfless and give more and more. Fine. That's a good preliminary practice. But it's only realize, when you realise that there's, you're just embedded in life. There's no self embedded in life. We're just embedded like the clover is, that we're open to really being intimate with the way things are. So let's just keep all of that in mind while practising and not grasping onto it as another truth. But Dharma practice, we often, Buddhist, Buddhist teachers get criticised all the time by this, by our spiritual competitors in the marketplace, that Buddhists are so negative. Not this, not this, not this, not that, not this, not this, not that. Uh-huh. But it's only by kind of knocking things away constantly that people want to grasp onto that we finally come to some sense of freedom because there's so many things that the grasping mind wants to grasp onto. But don't know mind. To embrace don't know mind um, is, it's another phrase that we can hold on to, but at its essence, to, to cultivate the don't know mind is at the essence of the practice. <laughs>